John chapter 3, a passage of scripture that I'm sure many of you are familiar with, especially verse 16, for God so loved the world. And what I want to do is look at this passage today and specifically what Jesus said to Nicodemus about being born again. And so the title of our message is, You Must Be Born Again. And I'll give you an outline if you'd like to take notes, that's fine. We're going to look at Nicodemus, first of all. An interesting guy. He's only mentioned a couple other times in Scripture, besides here in John 3. And he was a Pharisee, but he came to faith in Christ. Then the expression of the term born again. It's not used a lot in the Bible. A couple times here in John 3, a couple times in 1 Peter, and that's about it. But it's a good term. It's an important term. And uh, we'll look at the meaning of that term, born again. Then we're going to look at how Jesus illustrated this when he said born of the spirit and he used the illustration of the wind. It's a good illustration. We'll look at that. Then briefly at John 3.16, we'll drop down to John 3.16, the gospel in a nutshell. And then I want to briefly at the end just share my own testimony of how God drew me to himself 58 years ago, how he caused me to be born again. Nicodemus, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. He was what we might call a sincere seeker in the best sense of the term. He was a Pharisee. And if you read through the Gospels and see what Jesus had to say about Pharisees, it was pretty negative. Uh, Many of them were hypocrites, say one thing and do something else. Or worse yet, uh, in a sense, legalists, where they were trusting their own righteousness, their own good works, to, to earn their way with the Lord. And Jesus came down on them very hard. But there were exceptions. At least a couple are mentioned, and one of them is Nicodemus that we're going to look at. The other one that's mentioned as an exception, who was a Pharisee, but who believed in Jesus, was Joseph of Arimathea. You may remember that name. So this was Nicodemus. Now, I I use the term sincere seeker, and I used it in a good sense. Sometimes we hear about seeker-sensitive worship services. We're we're not trying to be seeker-sensitive. We're trying to be scriptural. We sometimes use the term normative principle of uh, a regulatory principle of, of worship. What does the Bible say by example? And what does it say how we should worship? We're not trying to be seeker sensitive in worship. But on the other hand, when we're talking to people, when you go to 69th Street and talk to people, we don't know their hearts. God has to open their hearts. But there are those who are, we can use the term in a good sense, seeker sensitive, who who are open. And Nicodemus was one of these people. At this point in time, He was not yet a believer. He was not yet born again. And we'll look at that in just a second. Two other places where Nicodemus is mentioned. Uh, One is in John 7. And I'm just going to read these. You can follow along. John 7 at the very end of the chapter. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, one of the Pharisees, one of the crowd, said to them, to the other Pharisees, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? 
he was kind of st sticking up for Jesus. We're not told whether at this point or he had become a believer or not. We don't really know, but he was he was sympathetic to Jesus. And uh, they came. They replied, "Are you from Galilee? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee." The other Pharisees came down real hard on him. Now he's mentioned one more time, and that's at the end of John's Gospel, after Jesus had died on the cross and been, uh, not before he had risen from the grave. John 19, verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. This is after Jesus had died. This is his burial before the resurrection. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in, in weight. Um, this point in time, and I'm reading between the lines, but I'm, I'm confident of this, that Nicodemus and Joseph of Marimathea were believers, were disciples of Jesus, based on what they did. The passage doesn't specifically say they were believers, but based on what they did, uh, giving him a proper burial, they had come to faith in Christ, even though they were Pharisees. And that's a wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. uh, Nicodemus had taken what Jesus says to him, which we're going to see in just a second, um, about being born again, and, and had he had become born again. Before I move on, let me ask, are you like Nicodemus? Maybe a sincere seeker. You're not quite there yet as far as giving your life to Christ, but you're open. Your mind is open. Your heart is open. Let me encourage you. Listen to what Jesus said to Nicodemus. Born again. If you're taking notes, letter A was Nicodemus. Letter B, born again. He came at night. Don't get too hard on him because he came at night. I mean, the Pharisees were really... They could have thrown him out of the synagogue if they knew he had anything to do with Jesus. He came at night. He, verse 2, he made, it's kind of a question, kind of a statement. Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs, miracles, that you do unless God is with him. Now listen how Jesus responded. Didn't really answer the question about whether he was a man of God or a teacher and so on. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Wow. What does he mean by that? Well, Nicodemus wondered the same thing. How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? What are you talking about, Jesus? Jesus answers him, verse 5, Truly, truly, or we may have learned it verily, verily, I say unto you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, there's different views of what it means to be born of the water. I'm not going to try to solve that for you this afternoon. Good scholars have a lot of different views. Was it baptism? Uh, the pastor who led me to Christ made a strong case that it was natural birth. Like when a woman's water breaks, that's referring to natural birth. He he's took the position that that's what born of the water meant. 
And, then, and there's a good argument for that. Another, the passage, actually, the chapter before Ezekiel 37 that Mark read for us, Ezekiel 36, talks about water and a purification rite in the Old Testament. That may have been, had something to do with it, or water as an emblem of the Holy Spirit. We're not going to solve that. But the second thing that Jesus said, born of the water and of the Spirit, born of the Spirit means very simply being born again. That's what he's talking about to Nicodemus. And it's what theologians call, there's a big word that you've heard, and it was in the Titus passage that Paul read for us, regeneration. And regeneration, isn't that term isn't used very often in Scripture, but it means exactly the same thing as the term born again. What regeneration means is God the Holy Spirit changing your mind and your heart and your will causing you to repent of your sins, giving you faith to trust in Christ. That's regeneration. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. And as if to reemphasize it, he said that in verse 3, you must be born again. Then in verse 7, marvel not that I said unto you, you must be born again. I don't want to have a uh, theological tangent here this afternoon, but let me, let me emphasize the fact, regeneration being born again, comes before faith and repentance. And it's something God does in us and for us. Uh, we do the repenting. We repent of sin, although God has caused us to want to repent of our sins. And we do the believing. God gives us the faith. But we do the belief. But the regeneration, the being born again, uh, God does. He changes us. It's his work in our hearts, in our minds, in our wills. So it's a good term, being born again, being regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Same thing is, is essential. Jesus said, you must be born again. Let me move on. If, if you're taking notes, letter C, born of the Spirit. And Jesus uses the illustration of the wind. Verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, Jesus is still talking about being born of the Spirit, being born again, and he uses an interesting illustration, the wind. Yeah, that wind, the wind that's outside, that blows the leaves, that uh, blows flags, that musses up your hair on a windy day. Uh, maybe it affects your golf shot, I don't know, does good things too, dries clothes, sails ships, that wind, part of God's creation. And Jesus uses it here as an illustration specifically of the Holy Spirit working in a person's life and causing him or her to be born again. Let me ask a question. Can you see the wind? Don't, go, don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. Uh, can you actually see? You see the effects of the wind, but do you actually see the little molecules of oxygen and hydrogen and nitrogen zipping through? No, no, you can't see it. It's invisible. Um, we see the effects of the wind. The leaves moving, flags flying, um, maybe your hair getting messed up. If it's really a strong wind, you can feel it on your skin but you don't actually see the wind. You see the effects. 
Same thing with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. He's very real, but he's invisible. But we can see the effect of his work on a person's life, particularly on our own life. When the Holy Spirit comes into a person's life, there's a difference. There's changes. Things begin to change. First and foremost, it gives you a heart to repent of your sin. It gives you faith to trust in Jesus. And your sins, as a result, your sins are forgiven. You become a child of God, part of God's family, or as the Bible puts it, um, part of Christ's body, the church. He begins changing us little by little. What the, what the scriptures call sanctification. Making you more like Jesus day by day. That's the Holy Spirit working in you. Invisible, but the effects are real. So let me ask before we move on. Have you had this kind of change in your life? The Holy Spirit. Praise God. Praise God. Letter D, if you're taking notes, John 3.16. Let's just drop down to it. I'll quote it the way most of us learned it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The gospel in a nutshell. God sending his son, his only begotten son, to die on the cross for our sins. That whosoever, which means very simply whoever, anyone, you or I, who believes in him, who puts their trust in him, who has faith in him, will have everlasting life. Amen. This is really the heart of the gospel, the essence of Christianity. And uh, I'd like to just close with a word of personal testimony. Um, I don't like to emphasize personal testimony. I'd rather emphasize what does the scripture teach. But I want to illustrate by how God worked in my life almost 58 years ago. I grew up on a farm in upstate New York, a little town called Baldwinsville, outside of Syracuse. We attended, my parents and the six children, I was the second out of six children, we attended the Presbyterian Church in our town. Very faithful, we were very active. Uh, Sunday school, every Sunday church, youth group Sunday evenings. My dad was an elder, my mom taught Sunday school. And uh, even though our church was, I wouldn't really say conservative, but very traditional, this is back in the 50s, um, I never really heard the biblical gospel that I needed to be born again. I needed to be saved from my sin. I never heard that. Um, what Jesus was talking about to Nicodemus here in this passage. 1962, the year I graduated from high school, our family moved from Baldwinsville down to Ithaca, New York, where we went to Cornell University. My parents had gone there, my grandparents, all six of us. Uh, my parents worked there. Mom was on the faculty. Um, and we began going to the First Presbyterian Church in Ithaca. Now, the church in Ithaca was very ultra-liberal, uh, politically as well as theologically, and uh, I didn't like it, uh, not because I understood the gospel, but because we were very conservative politically. So I, we didn't like the church in Ithaca. And by my sophomore year in college, 
uh, I was in, living in my fraternity, so I stopped going to church. Now, if you had asked me at that point of time, or even like when I was in high school, do you believe in God? Absolutely. Absolutely. But it really wasn't a big deal in my life. I wasn't born again. I believed in God. I went to church every Sunday. Uh, you could call me a hypocrite or a phony, but I was just going along with everybody else. Um, and I really didn't have Jesus in my heart. Skipping ahead, uh, October 1964, I'm 20 years old, I'm a junior in college, I live in the fraternity. Mid-October, a Tuesday evening, um, we had a room in our fraternity house, uh, it was called the alumni room, it was probably about the size of this room, very nicely furnished, some nice furniture, you couldn't bring food or drink in there. We called it the alumni room. It was a good place to study. So I'm in there on a Tuesday evening all by myself studying. And a bunch of guys come in and they say very politely, uh, we have a Bible study. We, we have permission to use this room for a Bible study. Now, these were guys that one of them had been in our fraternity, but they'd all graduated and they were in this College of Veterinary Medicine. They were graduate students. And they were going to be vets. And they had the really great idea of having a Bible study at our fraternity and inviting some of the undergraduates like myself. So they said to me, they were real polite about it, they said, you know, we do have permission to use this on Tuesday nights. Would you like to join us? And I kind of said to myself, yeah, I'm tired of studying, sure. Went back to my room, dug out my Bible, blew the dust off, and I, and I came back. And, and I'll tell you what I remember that first night my first uh, encounter with real Christians. Um, I don't remember anything about what we studied, but I did remember they took the Bible seriously. And that impressed me. And they invited me to their church. They said, we go to a little church called Faith Bible Church. Uh, you don't have a car, we'll pick you up. So, okay, Sunday morning. And I went the next Sunday, October 25th. Uh, Sunday morning they took me, Sunday evening uh, they said we have a Sunday evening service, we'll, we'll pick you up and, and take you out. And again, what I remember that first Sunday, October 25th, 1964, was they took the Bible seriously. They took, the, they took, the, they took God seriously. Uh, the church was in the pastor's home. Uh, he, had, he had a big two-car garage that he had converted to a meeting room. And he pulled in chairs just like you're doing here, except they would have 30 or 40 people crammed into his garage. And we worshipped. And it was uh, it was traditional. We sang hymns. And uh, he preached the word. He preached the Bible. It wasn't a social gospel like I would hear downtown at the First Presbyterian Church. Uh, they really took the Bible seriously. And that impressed me. The next Sunday I came back, November 1st, 1964, and it was Communion Sunday. Like a lot of churches, first Sunday of the month, we're going to do Communion. And at the end of the service, the pastor passed out the bread, and I'd taken Communion ever since I had communicants class when I was 12 or 13. I took a piece, and, and we were all going to eat together, which a lot of churches do it that way. 
And I think the pastor, I don't know if he saw me, but he saw maybe me and other visitors that he wasn't sure if we were really born again. And he went to the passage in 1 Corinthians that says very clearly, uh, do not take of the bread unworthily. And he said that means if you're not saved, if you're not born again, you're not to take it. And right then and there, God brought me under conviction. And I said to myself, I, I won't say I don't know what he's talking about, but I know I'm not saved. I know I'm, I've never been born again, what they're talking about. So I tucked the bread in my pocket, and I sort of said to the Lord, when I get this right, I'll, I'll take it. Well, praise God, I came back that Sunday evening for the evening service. Somebody picked me up, brought me back. And again, I heard the gospel. At the end of the service, and I don't remember what he preached on, uh, we sang, I surrender all to Jesus. And the pastor said, don't sing it unless you really mean it. And the Lord worked in my heart. This is a little, and I still have this. This is 58 years old, a little card that describes the church and their views and so on. It was actually a Baptist church that was reformed, um, but very very biblical, and I wrote on the back, I surrender all to Jesus, November 1st, 1964, and I signed my name. I still have that card. Um, after the service, and I, I don't know if it was then or a little later that I took the piece of bread because I knew God had drawn me to himself, but after the service, uh, on Sunday evenings, there wasn't as many people. There may have been 10 or 15, about like what we have here today, maybe a little more, and so they would always have us the pastor's wife would have a cake or something, and I'm not expecting a cake, Rod, but uh, <laughs> little refreshments afterwards. And uh, we were out in the kitchen, and I was sitting at the table with the pastor. And this is funny, I can always remember it. This is 58 years ago. Election, presidential election was coming up in two days. First Tuesday, November 3rd. Barry Goldwater was running against Lyndon Johnson. Oh, wow. And I was a big Barry Goldwater fan because we were very conservative politically. And as I said, theologically, we never had heard the gospel until then. Uh, so I asked the pastor what he thought about the election. And you know how he answered me? This is beautiful. Have you ever been born again? That's how he answered my question. In other words, he, he, let's not talk about the election. Let's talk about have you ever been born again? And I said... I wasn't sure because I knew I had done something in the service. God had changed my heart. And he led me in prayer and showed me some scriptures and we confirmed it right then and there. I was baptized the next week in Cayuga Lake, November 8th. Had to chip the ice away. Well, not quite, but it was it was very cold. And, uh, and God's been good to me ever since. I praise God. Now, I want to close right here, but I want to ask ourselves the same question that Pastor Eck asked me and the question that Jesus, uh, the statement that Jesus made to Nicodemus 2,000 years ago, have you been born again? If God is changing your mind and your heart to put your faith in Jesus, you can do it right now if you've never done it before. Just simply ask the Lord, I know that I'm a sinner, I know that Christ died for my sins, and I put my faith in him right now. I, 
I suspect most of you here have made that choice, but I don't know your heart, so I'll leave it with you. Jesus said to, says to all of us, you must be born again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen. Let's turn in our, um, I think this is next, Mark.